everyone. What's going on? Welcome to the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but anesthesia and pain management and ways we can make things better for our patients. I am joined today by a really fantastic veterinarian out of Ireland, so all the way over from Ireland. So please, please, please enjoy this accent because it is amazing. Um, We're going to talk about some pain management stuff today, but first I want to tell you that Dr. Dara O'Hanlon was um, brought up in a very, very early on by his grandmother who actually took him on calls to large and small farms around Ireland. He went to the University of College, he went to University College Dublin. He was a small animal medicine intern at a referral hospital. He also worked as a veterinarian, a regulatory veterinarian, and as a primary care veterinarian. However, he decided to take things even further, and in 2021, he became an advanced veterinary practitioner. We'll talk to him about what that means. And in 2022, he decided to hone his skills even further and get into dermatology. Now, you guys know how I feel about dermatology. This is not my area of expertise. I want to hand this off to somebody else. However, there are some things that we could be doing better for our pets, maybe in the areas of pain control. And we're going to talk to him about that today. So welcome to the show, Dr. Dara. Hey, thanks so much, Tasha. And um, thank you very much for having me on your very prestigious uh, podcast. Um, Just thank you to you, Stephen and Darcy for creating some great content. And as I understand it, I have you to thank for the Veterinary Pain Awareness Month. Oh, yes, yes. Well, it's flourished into something really big. And I'm and I think that uh, I'll let the listeners know that that's where we connected is that I saw on Instagram, there was a lot of content being put out that you were putting out. And if you guys are on Instagram, and you want to follow along, I'll put in the show notes. Uh, but Dara's handle on Instagram is the topical vet. So be sure to follow him there. But putting out a lot of content as far as pain management goes, especially during Animal Pain Awareness Month. So Thank you so much for that and spreading awareness. But you work in dermatology. What got you uh, motivated to spread uh, information about animal pain and specifically medications? Yeah, well, I suppose um, I was just conscious. It is something that we deal with every single day. And I must hold my hands up and say that I don't exclusively do, do dermatology. I also am a primary veterinarian. So it's something that I will see day in, day out. You know, you're every single aspect of care, whether it's, you know, acute pain or chronic pain. And at this point as well, even if you take something simple like osteoarthritis, there are more treatments than ever before that are being authorized and released. And I guess I always had an interest in medicines in general. And I certainly would generally approach most cases medically, um, or at least that's how I'm minded. Uh, and even I was just getting a little bit confused, if, if I can be blunt, like there's so many treatments that are coming out, so many novel treatments. I was trying to think to myself, OK, well, what is the best treatment for this or that? I think that's what's so beautiful about pain management and um, about anesthesia, analgesia, that, you know, each patient is unique. So that that's kind of where it came from. Great. Well, we definitely appreciate it, especially the love on certain drugs. Um, I think everybody that listens to this knows that I'm a huge Dexmedetomidine fan, not only sedative and analgesic, but then also ketamine, probably my second my second love. I just love uh, a little, like a little kiss of ketamine and everything to to help with com- pain control. And it comes down, it comes down to, the, to the, like terminology as well. Like I know that, you know, 
it's you know something that's um really popular now is microdose ketamine i mean you put that in front of anything microdose it, it intrigues you you know you want to know more yeah um, mm-hmm. and then you could end that rabbit hole and you realize about you know different methods of action different ways and pathways of controlling pain and it's a beautiful thing to go down a rabbit hole and then ultimately for there be for there to be benefits for your patients it's phenomenal um, and I think when I started out in practice 10 years ago now, one of the vets I worked with, he was starting to use amantadine for his chronic osteoarthritis cases. And I, I, gen, I have no problem saying this. I had no idea. I had no idea why he was doing it, what the purpose of it was. And um, I thought he was off his rocker. Never heard of the drug. When I looked it up, it seemed to be an antiviral. And um, but that's just it's amazing, like ignorance is bliss. And once you start getting a bit more information and that's why some of the, some of the content that you guys have um, is phenomenal because it really makes it accessible. And especially nowadays when everyone is busy, the industry is busy. So it's nice to have resources like yours. Oh, well, thank you. And for you guys who are listening and might not know what he's talking about and are in that camp of what what is he talking about, amantadine? I have never even heard of this. So the cool thing about amantadine, you guys have heard us talk about NMDA receptor antagonists and how they function and especially small amounts of uh, action at the NMDA receptor can help um, with this gate control theory, our wind-up pain, all of these things. And if you've ever heard of people going into ketamine comas or taking ketamine to basically have a pain reset or to kind of reset that threshold, that's what we're doing at the NMD receptor. And amantadine is an oral medication that does just that. So it works in the same family as ketamine, teletamine, and things like that. So a lot of times in osteoarthritis patients, instead of just switching over the NSAID, if we feel the NSAID hasn't been working any longer, we maybe will start a course of amantadine instead of just doing a switch. And that way we can see, do they maybe just need their pain threshold reset? So yeah, I love anything in that family. I love, you know what I say that about like every drug family though, because earlier I was done another podcast and I was talking about how much I love local anesthetics and how we're underutilizing local anesthetics and and especially lidocaine, which is so just, just so cheap in, oh, in, yeah. in, Bet med between lidocaine infusions and just local blocks being underutilized again something very cost effective and something as far as pain control goes is going to make a huge huge difference absolutely so, let's talk because you do have the special certificate in dermatology let's talk specifically about dermatology because before we started recording you had mentioned that there might be, or you could probably narrow it down to like a top five conditions that you're seeing. So what are, what do you usually see in practice when people come to see you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the most common dermatological complaint in general is going to be, you know, pruritus or that sensation of itch. And um, I mean, I suppose this certainly, it probably isn't often thought of as a painful condition, but um, if you look at, say, some of the ways that you can assess pain, so you talk about that short form Glasgow composite pain scale, and um, one of the parameters there is, you know, licking the wound or licking a painful area or, you know, that sensation of itch or pruritus. And we know that kind of the main method of transmission of that kind of pain is transmitted by C fibres. So I suppose pruritus for sure is a manifestation of pain. But it's that slow kind of burning sensation and um, that slow burning itch. And um, when I think about, say, some of the more painful dermatological conditions that you may see, some of them are very, very rare. So, for instance, 
you know, if you talk about one of the rare ones, one one that I haven't even seen, you could be talking about something like a familial vasculopathy of beagles, very, very painful conditions where you've got almost like a systemic necrotizing vasculitis. Oh, um, I've never even heard of this. Yeah. And I, to be honest, it's one of those things where you'll see it in the textbooks um, and you know, I suppose you could be a boarded dermatologist your whole life where you're only seeing referrals and you may never see this case. And um, then there's other kind of rare diseases like forms of lupus, so vesicular cutaneous lupus erythematosus, quite a painful condition, but again, really quite rare. And um, you'll probably see one or two cases in your whole career. Um, Post-grooming frunculosis is probably something that's more common. I've seen actually, funny enough, two cases only recently in the past two months and um, initially really, really quite painful. Another condition that um, is quite painful and certainly has um, has a significant pain component is something like acrylic dermatitis. Again, quite an uncommon condition, you know, in a big study of 2000 patients. And um, it accounts for, I think it was something like 0.07% of cases. So again, a really, really uncommon condition, but we all probably have seen at least one or two of those cases. But I think that the, the one that I would see the most, um, both in general practice and in animals that are referred to me for further dermatological examination, is going to be otitis externa or ear disease. Um, I certainly would say that that reliably is a painful condition and yeah, I think that's a, as good a place as any to start. Yeah, so certainly I work in anesthesia. I've been mainly focused in anesthesia and pain management for probably 10 years now. So I don't see as many of the the dermatitis cases or the otitis cases. But certainly I know that when I was in GP, oh my gosh. I mean, every cocker spaniel, right, comes in with <laughs> or every Labrador that's been out swimming and doesn't get its ears dried and then comes in with these infections. So let, let's start there because I do think that's something that a lot of people are seeing out in practice. And maybe our first line is that we know this is an infection. So we think about that perspective, but we don't maybe think about how painful it could be. So let's say we do have an older cocker spaniel coming in, recurrent ear infections. Talk to us about kind of treatment options and how, what are some ways that we can tell owners to also look out for painful signs, right? How do we know it's getting worse? And when you see these cases, you personally, what are you doing to treat or what analgesics might you be using in these cases? Absolutely. I think you touched on a really good point. I think that the first time you see, you know, an acute otitis externa, um, it, it, I think that those cases, hopefully everyone's really happy ahead to manage the first presentation. I think that probably I can think of, so I've only been bitten twice in my life. Very, very lucky. Twice it was by the same dog. And this dog, unfortunately, had gone through its whole lifetime with chronic ear disease and um, it was rescued or rehomed by new owners. But it was clear that this dog had long-standing chronic perennial um, otitis externa. We went through our, our whole dermatological workup. And during that workup, that's when this doggy managed to snag me twice. But mm. more so my fault. But this doggy was terrified, absolutely terrified of anyone approaching the head region in general. No matter how um, cognizant you were in terms of your approach and um, how many, I suppose, um, ways that you could try and reframe the consultation or the examination and um, trying to get the owners to maybe 
coming into the room a different way, really looking at things in a very holistic manner. And it was clear that this was just a really fearful dog. But it was it, again, I think that this is a, a manifestation of pain that sometimes we forget about. And um, there was a really good paper done in the veterinary clinics, the small animal um, paper in 2006 by Martin and Martin. And they talk about, say, dermatological pain or, you know, pain management in dermatological conditions. And they talk about the unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual, actual or potential tissue damage. And I think this is a good example. This doggy had been so badly affected and was so badly affected by chronic ear disease that it was reacting in anticipation of pain. So you'll see many dermatological textbooks, many prominent uh, leaders when it comes to otitis. They talk about, you know, if a doggy is clear that they're sore, that their stenotic ear canals, hyperplastic ear canals, that it's not wrong to treat them with a glucocorticoid at a dose ranging from, well, I won't mention the dose, I suppose, because I'm conscious there's differences between mix per kg and I think you guys use mix per pound and things like that. But um, anti-inflammatory doses of glucocorticoids to at least make the patient comfortable before you even try and maybe put an otoscope in. Um, I think then when it comes to managing um, the pain, most veterinarians, you're going to use a comb combination of systemic glucocorticoids and probably then a topical preparation, depending on your cytology, depending on what diagnostics you've done. But most of the time you'll have a combination product with a topical steroid plus an antifungal plus an antimicrobial. And um, I think that when you get to the point where you're managing, say, a chronic allergic otitis, that's where the role of topical steroids really come into play. They'll keep the tissues nice and open. But I, I think anyone can do that. So there's it's a really good condition where you're perfectly within your rights to use glucocorticoids. But that's not to say that you shouldn't forget about other pain relief, adjunctive pain relief as well. Um, so I suppose that's where I suppose we could talk about that in more detail. If you wish, there was maybe a few drugs that, that I use uh, from time to time. Let's talk about drugs. Everybody knows I like talking about drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, certain, one of the, the more, more simple drugs that I like to add in is that if I've got a patient and it's clear that they're still in pain and you, you talked there initially, Tasha, about, you know, what would you ask the owners to look for? So I'd certainly be looking for head shaking whether it's subtle or overt. Sometimes you'll have incredibly obvious signs of poorly managed otic pain. So you might see visible signs of aural hematomas or something like that. You might see whining, you might see depression, all uh, withdrawn behavior, all those kind of signs. But I think one drug that might be underused um, is gabapentin. Uh, gabapentin is a very, very useful adjunctive analgesic for that kind of pain. Um, especially if it is that there's active inflammation and you're looking for another way to, to manage and control their pain. The way I describe gabapentin to clients is I say, oh, you know, if it was being used in a human, it would say caution may cause drowsiness. Do not operate heavy machinery. I'm not sure yourself, like, you know, do you with the doses that you use, would you be kind of warning owners as much about the drowsiness type effects or do you start low and then finish high on your dosing? Here in the U.S., we mm. start high and then taper down. So a lot of times with gabapentin, we're, we are using it similar to the regimen we would with steroids, where we'll start strong for a couple weeks and then on the third week come down and on the fourth week come down even more. Um, but usually if they're doing gabapentin in that way, it's they're usually on it for four to six weeks tapered down. 
Nice, nice. And I find that's a really, really useful adjunctive analgesic. There are other ones as well. You'll see in the literature that there are, there are some reports of using drugs like tramadol. Um, I think tramadol, there's a lot, there's maybe an increased spotlight on tramadol recently. Um, I know that there are some studies that question whether or not dogs can metabolize that particular metabolite well. So how many dogs are actually going to benefit from tramadol? I don't use it myself for we don't yeah. really use it much either. Sometimes we'll use it for some sedation purposes. And mm. I know we have evidence to say that it does work well in cats. But as everyone says, good luck getting a tramadol tablet into a cat. It is. I've tried. I tried one time and I was like, you know what? This is there's there's got to be something better than this. It was. Oh, it was terrible. And the cat was like, you know, it's so bitter. And the cat's just foaming yeah. this bitter tramadol foam and he hates it and I hate it. It was not a good thing for anybody. No, I hear you. It's like a almost like a bad, grotesque Santa beer dripping off their jowls. It's no, it's not pleasant. And I, I have I haven't yet had a case where I've had to use this drug, but I from first principles, this could be useful. So we know that NMDA antagonists, so you talked at the start about amantadine. We know that they can also be useful for chronic otitis externa, where you've got like that kind of wind up of pain and trying to wind things back down. Um, so, you know, th if you had a patient where um, maybe it was clear that you were worried about wind up of pain, that would be a useful drug to trial, uh, maybe at least for a month period, just to see, is there any way that you control the pain even better? And then the other thing to consider is that there are kind of the more wild and wacky type medicines. So I'll just mention this because of one thing that happened during that veterinary pain awareness month was that we came, well, I, I started to look at some of the more unusual drugs that I had heard about, but they've since gone off the market. So this one it was an obscure medicine, but it might actually be useful for um, for dermatological conditions. So this is Tapoxylin. Um, it was licensed as Zubrin. I don't know if you ever use that or is it still available over in? It's not. It, we had it early on in my career and then it went off. And I'm not sure exactly why. I think there was some problems with it, but I know that we don't utilize it anymore. But I do remember back in the day when the reps did come to our practice and I remember the box. I remember, you know, being excited about it and then being like, oh, and then it disappeared. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's one of these classic examples where um, it, it, it was authorized as a as a COX inhibitor and it was a non COX selective non steroidal anti inflammatory substance. And so it basically produces less prostaglandin and these prostaglandins trigger inflammation. And it was authorized, I think, in 2001, or at least in Europe, that's when it was authorized. And one of the main kind of selling points of it was that it was it was hoped that it would improve compliance. So they're formulated in an unusual manner using lyophilisate tablets, and they're designed to almost melt on the tongue or dissolve rapidly on the tongue. However, the problem with this was that they dissolved so rapidly that accurate dosing required holding the dog's mouth closed for four mm. seconds to ensure that there was full dispersal of the drug. Um, so a very, very unusual method or route of administration. Now, I won't talk too much about the musculoskeletal effects. The, the main reason why it'd be interesting from a dermatological point of view was that it also blocked lipooxygenase, LOX. Um, mm -hmm. now, 
in terms of, of Zubrin, they thought that this would improve the gastrointestinal safety profile. However, there was a similar a similar instance of gastrointestinal side effects with that versus the other already authorized um, COX inhibitors. And then I think because of the issues with medication compliance and the fact that the gastrointestinal safety profile was not uh, superior, um, it was withdrawn, at least from Europe, uh, due to the company's marketing strategy. However, going back to the LOX and um, the lipooxygenase, that pathway is responsible for arachidonic acid being formed into leukotrienes. And basically, this pathway is implicated in several inflammatory skin conditions, including allergic skin disease manifesting as, say, chronic allergic otitis or anything like that. So that drug may have been useful, but unfortunately, it's a bit of a pipe dream because it's certainly not available in Europe. It sounds like it's not available in North America either. No, we're not utilizing a lot. Um, one that I wonder that, again, I haven't utilized a lot, but I'm wondering if you have any experience or you have utilized it there, uh, is amitriptyline mm. for a pain management purpose. Yeah, so amitriptyline is... Uh, that actually, that's a really interesting um, medicine. It was initially, if you look at some of the older um, handbooks or guides to dermatology, that actually was one of the drugs that was mentioned for uh, for part of your pharmacological workup. So you might use an ectoparasite trial to make sure that there was no evidence or no chance that parasites would be contributing towards the sensation of itch. And in one of the earlier ones, they actually mentioned amitriptyline. Now, it wasn't immediately clear, was that because of the possibility of psychogenic dermatoses? So is there any chance that, say, um, you know, licking at the paws could be related to an obsessive compulsive type disorder? Or was it uh, due to the, if I'm not mistaken, I think amitriptyline has some low level antihistamine type effects as well. So perhaps that's the reason why. But it's kind of fallen out of favour now, or at least I'm not aware of it being part of routine workups. No, I don't see it as routine here in the United States, but every once in a while for some of our really, really bad chronic pain patients, we will. I think what's interesting about amitriptyline is that because it can be used both as a nerve pain analgesic and in some places uh, as an antidepressant. And so as we look at more work, I think it would be interesting to see where it goes in the veterinary space in that we're just now beginning to really focus on um, the stress and anxiety and emotional toll that chronic pain can have. And so can something like this or will something like amitriptyline have a place in further research? It's just really interesting to think. And I always like it when old drugs, you know, reemerge with a different purpose as we research them, you know, similar to ketamine, right? Because in the beginning of my career, we were just slugging everything with high doses of ketamine and, right, using the dissociative anesthetic portion of it. We weren't even considering the NMDA receptor, really. We were just, we wanted them to be out so we could do our cat neuters. <laughs> but now utilizing these microdoses of ketamine or, you know, in, in a different way or looking at this old drug in a different way is really fascinating to me. So drugs like amitriptyline and and that kind of thing or pregabalin, like I start to think, oh, is there a way that maybe in the future we might utilize these for the benefit of our patients, especially chronic pain patients, because chronic pain is so multifaceted. And as you know, things like a cocker spaniel with just incessant ear infections that can't be that is going to affect their quality of life and it's got to affect them emotionally as well so it is really it's really an interesting kind of segue of chronic pain that i enjoy absolutely um, 
I must have another look at amitriptyline. And actually, you've jogged my mind there. Another medicine, which at least I feel over here is is underused, will be paracetamol. I think it might be called, what is oh. it? <laughs> don't make me cry do you know how badly i would love to have paracetamol here oh to have injectable paracetamol. oh you don't have you don't we have to inject don't we don't have it cannot have it can't use it it's oh it would be brilliant if we could but no i do um, use the injectable paracetamol if i have say a particularly bad ear flush um and i'm conscious that they're going to be painful waking up I do use it, but admittedly only relatively recently. Um, but I, I also would use that. I would I would use that adjunctively oral paracetamol uh, um, for short term, just making sure you're kind in the tummy. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah. That's another good shout. You jog my mind there. Yeah. Paracetamol is another good one. Oh, I just love talking about drugs. But <laughs> since since your thing is dermatology, let me ask you a question that we didn't talk about before. And so if you completely don't know the answer and if it causes you to swear a lot, then we can edit this out. But <laughs> for all of my friends who are in surgery like I am and we are constantly doing local anesthesia and especially epidurals, dermatology friend, can you tell me why is it? that the epidural, the area we shave for an epidural takes forever for that hair to grow back. What's the science <laughs> behind it? Is there any science behind it? Am I just making it up in my head? So I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to struggle to give you the correct answer here. Um, but I, I would see it. I, are you seeing with all the epidurals that reliably like they're taking six, nine months to grow back? Is that how long you're talking about? Not really. Yes, it would take months. So it's very unlike, you know, when you shave an abdomen for surgery mm. or you shave for a catheter within five or six weeks, that hair is growing back and you're OK. But for epidurals, we do tend to see it take months, months to grow back. And that's one of the things that owners will say to us is like, that's one of their complaints is that their their hair looks weird or their hair coat is different because of this square that they have from the epidural. And I just didn't know, is there anything in anesthesia land that I could be doing from a dermatology perspective to make this better? I don't actually, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I actually don't know. Um, I there would be, I'm sure there would be a good answer in terms of the hair follicles per square centimeter. I know there's differences in different parts of the body um, and even things like, you know, friction. So areas of friction, you're going to have increased turnover of cells and um, different paces of hair growth. So it could be something to do with that. There, I suppose there's a distant possibility. I'm thinking of things like um, you know, hair growth abnormalities where you get hair is stuck in either a phase of anagen or telogen, but generally they're a lot more widespread. Mm. I don't think that they'd be localized like that in case it was related to the epidural. So, yeah, I mean, the kind of the lazy kind of response to that is, you know, you think of something like cyclosporin reliably will cause hypertrichosis, although it would cause it all over. Um, and I'm not sure if um, if that's maybe if that's going to work for that particular problem. Oh, <laughs> I know. Um, so kind of to segue on that, if we were talking about topical things we use in surgery, um, do you have a preference for what you're using for your surgical preparation and scrub or one that is a little kinder and gentler potentially on the skin? So, you know, when it comes to surgical prep, like I will just use regular chlorhexidine um, 
and that's that's pretty much it. Um, but even with that, you'll still see, you know, you take, you know, your regular cast rates, you'll st- still see those dogs where they'll get, you know, a reactive dermatitis. Um, you'll make a note in the file because you're going to assume that it's, you know, it might be clear that it's only after the chlorhexidine goes on. So it's not necessarily related to the friction or the heat of the clipper blades or anything like that. Um, but I mean, that's going to happen all the time anyway. Like I'd, I never get too worried about that side of things. Um, if I do see it, to be fair, if I do see anything like that, I will generally make an effort to have a look at the rest of the dog. So I'll have a look in between their toes, their paws, I'll look down their ears just to see are there any other chances or signs that you're, you're talking about a dog with, say, hypersensitivity in other areas of the body? But no, I suppose I don't get too uh, too worried about it anyway. Great. And then last question I have for you is if you have a dog that has very, very high allergies, food allergies, all the allergies, you know these dogs, you've seen them in your practice, mm-hmm. do you tend to change their induction agent and shy away from propofol? No, I suppose if I had if I had a dog like that, I would still use propofol, um, but I probably would use low-dose metatomidine and as a pre-med, and I might even use something like, well, it depends on what the procedure was, but I'd probably right. use I just mean if you had a uh, if you do you ever avoid propofol because there was some chatter for a while as far as propofol containing the soy protein and would animals that have severe allergies be affected by this Um, in human medicine they didn't find any evidence of this but I just didn't know if you had any thoughts on that so we we did so a good example would be that I think the worry was that there was a preparation of propofol that was more likely to contribute towards histamine release I believe that was like part of the the issue I'm not sure by the way did that you you may be able to answer this question better than I but remember briefly there was different versions of profile available at least in Europe and if I'm not mistaken one of them had a preservative in it mm-hmm. there still is we have that here right and you couldn't give it so you couldn't give that through an intravenous port because it would coat almost the um the plastic tubing if that's the one I'm thinking of Yes. But yes. So it, when it comes to, to say, if I'm if I'm doing say if I'm doing a dermatological procedure like an investigation to do intradermal testing, I will do as much as I can to avoid using propofol because I don't want that to interfere with the accuracy of my reading of the intradermal test results. Mm, um, interesting. So I still can do it. I haven't yet had to do it, but if I if I did need say if a if a patient was too fractious and or too nervous or whatever, whatever it was. And I really needed to get this intradermal test done. Um, I could uh, induce briefly with propofol, but I would have to be cognizant that the wheel sizes, the, the reaction sizes would be smaller than if I wasn't using propofol. So it's not impossible, but it would make it a bit more challenging. Mm, interesting. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us and talking about pain management and drug pharmacology, especially in the context of dermatology, which I admittedly know very, very little and want to keep it that way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't not looking for a job in the derm department or the dentistry department. I'm very happy that there are people who want to do that. And I will handle all the sedation and anesthesia for you guys. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. And thank you for, for having me. Um, uh, honestly, what you guys are doing and even everything, the Animal Pain Awareness Month, it's fantastic. Um, and thank you so much for all you're doing to, for the vet industry and community. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. And if people want to get in contact with you or see what you're doing, what's the best way to reach you? Can they follow you on Instagram? Do you have a website? Yeah, so Instagram is the best place. So at the topical vet, and that's yeah, where you'll find the content that I'm putting up. All right, that sounds great. Thanks so much. Thanks a million.